spirituality, consciousness, health, and mindset. Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Together, we are all wisdom and knowledge seekers. Hey, what is up everyone? This week on the SEND podcast, we delve deep and discuss the pineal gland, also known as the third eye, with Anthony Peake. He's the author of some very fascinating books. The Infinite Minefield, Open the Doors of Perception, The Immortal Mind, Is the Life After Death, The Damien, The Labyrinth of Time, The Out of Body Experience, so many great books, and these can all be found at www.anthonypeake.com. So anyway, with the announcement a few years ago of Dr. Rick, Rick Strassman's research foundation regarding the discovery of DMT in the pineal glands of live rats, Monday Science has now took a huge step forward in understanding of this gland. But according to our guest today, conscious theorist Anthony Peake, he says that the pineal gland may very well just be a doorway to the secrets of the universe, and it's right in our heads. Interesting stuff. So just to paint a little bit of a picture for this episode, I just wanted to play a little quick snippet of Anthony speaking as it really sets the tone for this podcast. In 1991, Benny Shannon, the Israeli anthropologist, was visiting Latin America and he spoke to many, many ayahuascas and various other individuals. But the the most fascinating message he received was from, of all things, an ice cream salesman. And the ice cream salesman said that many, many years ago, God decided that he wanted to hide the greatest secret. And he thought, shall I hide it on the moon? And then he thought about this and he thought, no, because if if I hide it on the moon, it is inevitable that human beings at some stage will travel to the moon. And when they get to the moon, they will find the secret. And then he thought, well, maybe I could place the secret in the bottom of the ocean. And for the same reason, He thought, no, I can't do that, because if I do that, mankind will still find it, and unworthy people will find it. And then in a moment of inspiration, he decided the best place to hide the secret of the universe is deep inside the human mind, because he argued that only the right people will find it, and they will find their own way to it. So to say our minds are incredible would be a huge understatement. And it would be just as bad as saying as a pineal gland is just another part of the body. It certainly means so much to us in the human experience that we understand or let to believe. And this is not only because it holds scientific properties, but also spiritual properties as well. So I just wanted to give a little bit more background on what the pineal gland is and a bit substance behind it before we do jump on this podcast and start going very deep down the rabbit hole, as we definitely do. So there's a lot of things going on all around us and inside us that do affect our pineal gland. So the pineal gland is located in the brain and the pineal gland is a hormone regulator. It releases hormones in our body. The pineal gland also secretes two of the most important hormones in the human body. The first is melatonin and acts as a sort of a sleep regulator controlling our daily sleep cycle or circadian rhythm. While the other is called serotonin and acts as sort of a neurotransmitter and it keeps your mood on equilibrium and it sort of controls your mood in your day-to-day life. So these are just some of the base, basic scientific things that the pineal gland does in the brain. 
But then it gets a lot more fascinating when we start the research and looking at the connection between the pineal gland and the spiritual role it plays. And for some reason, the pineal gland isn't just in humans, it's almost in all vertebrate species on the planet. And it's in seeing how alike the pineal gland actually is to our eye itself. And the pineal gland's central role in the spiritual experiences has long been known by the world's religious traditions, ancient cultures, it's in the Egyptian pyramids, it's in paintings, art, drawings, and it's the fascinating thing is that you guys should know is that all these societies and ancient cultures not only live thousands of miles away from each other, but thousands of years apart from each other. So to me that kinds of hints towards a more connected society where they understood and were tapping into the power of the pineal gland. So even though it has been around for thousands and thousands of years, it's still a huge thing, not only scientifically, but spiritually. So within this podcast, we talked about the pineal gland and made the connection with DNA. We talked about Anthony's first-hand experience with the hypogenic light device, an invention theorized to stimulate DMT release. He also outlined evidence for the pineal gland's deep connection in religious traditions, beginning with the Sumerians, the Egyptians, linking to the Tibetan Buddhists, and also ancient Greek, Greek mysteries. And then Anthony ultimately draws a theoretical conclusion involving ethnogens, biluminous science, DNA and the zero point field, which is very fascinating to say the least. So just before we do jump with this one, you can now support the podcast by going to our Patreon page. And Patreon really is the best way to support the podcast, as it basically allows you guys to crowdfund this thing and in the process you get to receive some really cool rewards. We've never bombarded you guys with ads or products and every single bit of help that you guys can pledge to us will help us take this to the next level. So anyway, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all your guys' support and we really do love that you guys are tuning in every week and loving the podcast. So anyway, without further ado, the doorway to the secrets of the universe. Enjoy. Yeah, but um, like I said before, Anthony, as well, I absolutely, um, I love your work and um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast because um, what I really like about your work, you are really digging deep down the, uh, the rabbit hole of your research and um, what I said, I said, said this to Chris before, before the podcast, but what I like about you, Anthony, is that you really are sort of, a, um, you're a nightmare for the scientific uh, communities who is sort of like so fixed in their beliefs because you're just so thorough with your research and um, you devote so much energy into chasing your known, but you're so open with it as well and um you just like sort of go wherever the research leads in. I think that's beautiful. That's absolutely what science should do. Yeah. Science should deal with facts, not with scientism, which is um, if it doesn't fit in with your overall belief system, you ignore it. And I come across this a great deal. I mean, yeah, they, 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 they have great problems with me. Um, yeah. <laughs> Their the, the philosophy at the moment, the best way is to just completely ignore me, which yeah. is what they do. They, they just, uh, they, they, there's much easier people to have goes at uh, and uh, they will go at them but they never ever go at me in fact if you do a search of Anthony Peake on um, on Google the third thing you will get is something called rational wiki, uh, rational wiki. Yeah. Would never, I've never known such a, a misnomer ever but effectively you read the review of my work there because they're trying to do a hatchet job with me and all they do is criticize the fact that I'm not qualified to write about what I write about. And that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> they can't they can't do anything else. People never ever engage me on the science. Ever. Yeah. Because yeah. they don't. Because they can't. Yeah, they won't. 
I actually find as well when I when when I see uh, reviews like that, I, it actually it actually draws my attention to the person more because it, it, I understand the way the system works and it makes me actually think, oh, yeah, I bet he's an interesting person. <laughs> Gives it more credibility, really. Yeah, it does. It does actually. It does. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But um, Anthony, I really wanted to um, sort of st- start this off by, like I mentioned prior to the podcast as well, sort of honing in and digging on um, one area of your work, which is really fascinating. And um, I know that obviously you are somebody who is researching everything from like sort of consciousness, the nature of reality, afterlife, deja vu, um, paranormal experiences, out-of-body experience, and as well, you like the simulation theory as well. Um, but these are all, obviously, like I said before as well, these are all um, topics that are definitely right about the street. Um, but to be honest as well, the pineal gland is something that I've really been sort of interested in lately as well. And we've wanted to, we have wanted to cover this on the podcast for mm. a while now. And, um, and I know as well as this, like, like you said before, um, it, the pineal gland overlaps into so many different areas of like deja vu and DNA and things like that. But, um, just in regards to sort of, um, the pineal gland and things like that, I was actually wondering, and I know as well, um, in regards to the pineal gland, sort of, um, Rick Strassman's work now as well, who we've had in the podcast. And he was talking about how the discovery of DMT in the pineal glands of live rats as well. And we we'll also yeah. know that um, and understand now that sort of um, ancient civilizations in the past understood the huge importance of the spiritual realm. But I was actually wondering what sort of um, drew you into the area of the mystery of the pineal gland and what drew your fascination to it? I was invited to um, a meeting by a lady by the name of Evelyn Alassa Valerano. Now, Evelyn is one of the world's leading researchers in near-death experience and, in fact, has written a book with, I think, Kenneth Ring on near-death experience. And Evelyn had come across my first book, Is There Life After Death? The Extraordinary Science of What Happens When We Die, around about 10, 10 years ago, probably something like that. And I'd met her. We're both members of the Scientific and Medical Network, and I had met her at an event where she spoke um, up in Lancashire, Uh, a few years ago. And she contacts me and she says, I'm really keen for you to come over to Geneva uh, to stay over because um, we're going to be joined by a friend of mine called Dr. Um, Engelbert Winkler and his associate, um, Dr. Dirk Prokol. And Winkler is very keen to meet you because he's read your book and he had a near-death experience when he was a child. And his near-death experience was something that made him become a psychiatrist. I mean, for instance, Finkler is a consultant psychologist who specializes in um, childhood traumas. And his associate, um, Dirk Prokol, is a consultant neurologist. Now, just to give a little bit of backstory here, is that Dirk um, Engelbert, when he's working with children, realized that children would be more forthcoming when they're describing their their view of the world and their experiences if they were out in natural sunlight. But he realized that you can't be outside all the time. And he wanted to find a way that you could have a light source that could stimulate, could could reproduce natural light. And he approached his associate, um, uh, Dirk Prokol, and said, could we do something along these lines? And Dirk said, well, there's more than we can do, actually, because if we can use stroboscopic light in certain ways and we can use certain certain vibrations of light, we could actually stimulate unusual experiences. And they were aware of the work that had been done by a guy called Brian Geissen way back in the 1960s when Geissen had a, a light machine 
that effectively could bring about altered states of consciousness. And they put their minds together, and because of their areas of specialism, they were able to design a light device, uh, which they called at that time the hypnagogic light device, and they wanted me to test it out. So when I was invited over to Switzerland, funnily enough, a person we were talking about earlier on, um, uh, Dr. Dr. Arthur Funkhauser, he was there that day as well, because Arthur had come over for art, as I know, had come over from Bern, where he lives. Um, and he was he was witness to this and um, he tried the machine out himself. In fact, the interview I do of um, Engelbert, of, of Dirk, of, um, of um, uh, Dr. Funkhauser was that actual day as well that this event took place. Well. But suffice to say, what happens is uh, the guys turn up and they wheel in this device that you're probably far too young to remember, but the original Gene Barry film, um, War of the Worlds, based upon the, um, the, the, the story by H.G. Wells that yeah. came out about 1956. The, the flying saucers they had, though, were really quite peculiar. And they had in the center of them something coming out. It looked like a kind of an eye that moved around and sent out a death ray. The machine they brought in reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. It looked very, very peculiar and very, very strange. And they set it up. And they decided they would give me the most powerful dose of this thing, <laughs> um, which I thought, wow, oh God, what's going to happen here? <laughs> so I, I sit in front of it. And again, there's a video on my on my um, website and also on my Facebook site. There's a video of me doing this also on YouTube so you can see what took place. So I sit in front of the lights and they turn it on and I've got my eyes closed and you get these kind of flickering light sensations. And it continued for about... I don't know, 10 minutes and nothing happened. And I thought, this is going to be really embarrassing. I'm going to have to admit that whatever was supposed to happen didn't. But then it did. Uh, because suddenly there was a a field of blue light that came over from one side of my visual field. I think it was my, my left-hand side. Joining with a, a group of lights coming from the other side. And they came together and started to spin. And it was the kind of the tunnel effect of the near-death experience. And I felt the sensation of kind of lifting out my body towards this kind of light source. I then, my eyes started to vibrate in my head. So I started to get a bit disturbed about this. So I said, you know, that what is happening here? And and Prokos assured me that it was something to do with the way in which my my eyes were just reacting to the light source and to not worry about it. I was also at that stage convinced that they changed the color of the light, but they hadn't. Because I, I, I was allowed to have a look, and it was still pure white light. But I was seeing red lights and blue lights and various other colors. Wow. But as I'm doing this, I noticed in my extreme right periphery vision a movement. It's the only way I could describe it. It was like a shimmering. Now, I'm a classic migrainer, and one of the things I recognize is something called a scotoma, which when people have a migraine aura, it's a breakdown of the visual system. And it's like a kind of jagged, jagged movement, like like lightning almost. And it, it, it breaks up your vision. And it was something similar to that. And I was thinking this is probably stimulating in me a migraine, which oh. which is quite intriguing. We can touch upon that later. But I start and I said, can I look away from the light and have a look at what I'm seeing in my periphery vision? And they said, yes, you can, because your brain's now encoded it. 
So you can. And I turn around and even now I cannot even begin to explain what I saw. I was floating or I seemed to be looking down at the surface of a planet from probably around about 200 miles up. I don't know the distance really, but I could see the curvature of the planet in the distance and there were lights on the surface of the planet, red shimmering lights in a kind of checkerboard uh, fashion. And the flickering lights were actually moving to the edge of the the disc of the edge of the planet. And being me and being the brave person I am, I panicked and I told them to switch it off. And they switched the machine off and everything disappeared (laughs) straight away. Now, I have subsequently researched on this and... I spoke to a guy called uh, Robert Bruce, um, who's an Australian out-of-the-body researcher. And when I spoke to Robert Bruce about this, he, he said to me what I was seeing, though, was the, literally the astral plane. But I think there's more to it than that, because Carlos Castaneda writes something about something called the lights of the world. Now, Castaneda was an anthropologist who um, claimed that he'd spent time with somebody called um, Don Juan who was um, uh, a shaman, an Indian shaman. There is a backstory to that because, in fact, he made that up. It didn't actually happen in the way he described. But nevertheless, his discussion of the lights of the world intrigued me. So this was research I did subsequently to try and explain what I'd seen. But what we're talking about now is the pineal gland because what then happened was we had a discussion afterwards, myself and the other guys. And as we were discussing things, I started feeling a sensation in the centre of my forehead, a kind of a, a sort of buzzing feeling as if something was moving deep inside my brain that was actually manifesting in the centre of my forehead. And every time I said certain things, it was this kind of zzz, zzz feeling. And I didn't mention it to anybody because I thought it was so curious and so strange. But that night I went to bed and as I was lying in semi-sleep state, it started again. And that night, I had the most incredible dreams. Wow. Now, earlier on, we touched upon the writings of Jeremy Narby. It happened to me. In these dreams, I was there were huge snakes looking at me, looking down at me, looking as if I was I was I was worthless. I was a nothing. And these snakes were just weird. I never had dreams about snakes. I've never dreamt about snakes afterwards nor before. Yeah. But that night, I did, and there were two of them. And they were coiling around each other. Now, I then continued over a period of weeks to have this kind of buzzing sensation in my brain, which stimulated me to start researching the role of the pineal gland, because I had I had been aware of the pineal gland on, on some of my previous work, but not to any great extent. So I started to research in great detail the pineal gland, and in fact, Subsequently, my book, The Infinite Mind Field, describes my my search for the background to the pineal gland, the symbolism of the pineal gland, the way in which the pineal gland has been a fascination to civilizations as far back as the and ancient Sumer. Um, there are various some religions that that that, that 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 use the pineal gland. I mean, Kashmiri Shaivism. For instance, um, the individuals who follow this 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 particular religion were hats to actually protect the pineal gland, wow. and they believe that the pineal gland can manifest certain altered states of consciousness. Now, if this is the case, 
what was happening with the, the, the light machine? What did the hypnagogic light machine do in me? And I believe what it did was it stimulated my pineal gland to release dimethyltryptamine, DMT, endogenous, that is internally generated dimethyltryptamine. And I am damn well convinced that the pineal gland effectively creates DMT within the brain. Wow. Not only that, but DMT, personally generated DMT, is a neurotransmitter. In fact, as Rick Strassman says, it's our reality modulator. Yeah, yeah. Now, I then started looking into the neurology of this, and there's some very intriguing things here. The pineal gland, as you know, is, the, is one of only a handful, and really the major one, the only really noticeable one, that is, it's located at the back end of the roof of the third ventricle of the brain. And it's a, the third ventricle is a cavity between the two hemispheres. And it's the only thing that you'll find in the brain that isn't two. You know, we have two hemispheres, and everybody knows that of the brain. But underneath that, we have two amygdalae, we have two hippocampi, um, we, various other little things in there. They're all dual. We have two of them. But the pineal gland is singular. It's on its own. And in fact, such was the fascination in, in years gone by in earlier civilizations that they believed that this was the seat of the soul. Uh, Rene Descartes argued that it was the seat of the soul, for instance, because it's so peculiar and because they didn't know at that time exactly what it, what it was for. And indeed, even today, there is an ongoing mystery of the, the ultimate role of the pineal gland because for its size, it, it takes more, more blood goes through it than any other organ in the body for some reason. Also, it's the, one of the few areas of the brain that's outside of the blood-brain barrier. So it's actually part of the brain, but is also not part of the brain. But what we do know is, is that it creates uh, melatonin. Now, melatonin is the, um, the chemical that makes us effectively go to sleep. And it is intriguing how the pineal gland releases melatonin, how it knows to release melatonin. It's very, very intriguing. The pineal gland sits directly above something called the optic chiasma. This is where the, 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 the optic nerves from two of the eyes cross over. And it sits directly above this. And it seems to be able to sense when it's going dark. Because what happens when it starts to go dark, the pineal gland automatically starts to release melatonin, which makes us feel sleepy and wants to go and what makes us want to go to sleep. Now this means that it can perceive and can sense electromagnetic radiation, specifically light, or the signals going down the, the optic nerve from the, the, the retina to the, um, the back of the brain where the visual cortex is. Well, that's fascinating. Okay. Now, if this is the case, it means it's, 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 it's sensitive. But it's more than sensitive because in earlier animals, the pineal gland, in fact, is the third eye. There is a, an animal called the Tutora, which is a lizard that lives off the island, some of the islands off New Zealand. And the pineal gland of the Tutora is actually in the center of the, the head. And it's the third eye. And it's light sensitive. In fact, it, with earlier species, the pineal gland actually has an eye within it. It has an ability to actually see. But on tip of this, the pineal gland has something inside it called pineal sand. 
Wow. And pineal sand is is it are crystals, and these crystals are piezoelectric. They can generate electromagnetic radiation. Now, this makes it a very, very strange object, but it gets stranger because melatonin is, is, is very, very close in terms of its chemical makeup to dimethyltryptamine. They are very, very similar substances. Now, if the pineal gland does release dimethyltryptamine, and dimethyltryptamine is a, is a neurotransmitter, just for a bit quick background, neurotransmitters are, are chemicals that are created by the nerves and by the brain um, and other par parts of the body. They're the things that facilitate communication between cells. Specifically, neurotransmitters in the brain facilitate communications between the neurons of the brain. Because as you're probably aware, neurons do not, neurons themselves, the, the, the neurons of the brain don't actually touch each other. They have a very, very small, small gap between them called the synaptic cleft. And in the synaptic cleft, the sy one side of the synaptic cleft, whenever there's a signal going across the brain, will release one of these neuro neurotransmitters. And the neurotransmitters can then transfer the message to the next neuron or can actually stop the signal going through. They can inhibit the signal or they can facilitate the signal. Now, we, we, they discovered neurotransmitters around about the 1950s, and I think that there's now a couple of dozen of them that they've discovered. Serotonin, for instance, uh, glutamate, um, various other ones, dopamine. And in fact, this is how drugs work because drugs facilitate the, the generation of particular neurotransmitters. For instance, um, the, the, uh, the drugs we take to make us high and happy facilitate uh, certain endorphins release, which are feel-good transmitters. But the interesting thing about neurotransmitters is there are certain receptor sites in the brain that are designed like a lock is to a key to the, 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 the size and the shape of the, the particular molecule of the neurotransmitter. So the molecule locks in to the receptor sites in the other neurons. A few years ago, they discovered things called the trace amine-associated receptors, TARS. Now, these were a great mystery because nobody really understood what they did until they realized they are transmitter sites, they are transmitter sites or receptor sites for dimethyltryptamine. Now, dimethyltryptamine is the most powerful hallucinogenic substance known to man. It has been, it is in plants, it is in many, many things. In fact, it's very unusual to find things that dimethyltryptamine in one version or other doesn't exist in. And they've also found dimethyltryptamine in the human body. Oh. It's, it's, in the, it's in the blood, it's in the, 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 the spinocerebral fluid, it's in the liver. But they've never, ever found it in the brain. Now, if DMT is a neurotransmitter, surely it would be in the brain, but they've never found it there. Now, I know people like Rick Strassman is speaking to the same way that I am, that, mm -hmm. neurotrans that it probably is a neurotransmitter yeah. because of these receptor sites. But back in 2011, I think it was, maybe 2012, um, a research team at the University of Michigan. Found, found it rats, didn't they? Yeah, rat. That, that's right. A lady yeah. called Dr. Jimo mm. Vorjijin um, found that inside the pineal gland of live rats, they actually discovered dimethyltryptamine. Mm. Now, this should have been absolute headlines round the world because 
it's the most amazing discovery because it means that the human brain and the pineal gland actually generate this substance, mm-hmm. this powerful hallucination, hallucinatory substance that is the main substance of ayahuasca. And we, we bring it together in our own, in our own brains. Yeah. Now, this could explain something that has mystified mystics for a very, very long time. And it's something to do with when people go into deep states of consciousness or when they go into deep states of meditation, people claim that they have this incredible, strange taste at the back of the throat. And this this taste is known by many names over the years. It's been known as Amrit, Ambrosia, the living water, the nectar of sublime awareness. And it's, it's been known for, genera- for centuries. In fact, there is a technique that is done by um, certain adepts in India called K- Kedara Mudra. And that literally means in, in, in uh, Hindi, I think it's Hindi, it means tongue upward on palate, because this is what they do. They, they, they train themselves to be able to place the tongue at the back of the throat, rising the tongue up and being able to place the tip of the tongue at the back of the throat. Oh. Because when they do this, they taste this substance, Amrit, and it brings about hallucinations, out-of-the-body experiences and everything else. But there's been an ongoing mystery as to exactly what Amrit is. But I think I know. Okay, and it's fascinating. At the 49th day of gestation, when the baby is in the womb, the pineal gland and the pituitary gland are one single thing. Okay, Mm -hmm. and they over a period of time, what happens is the it it grows out the roof of the mouth. There's a layer of cells known as the ectoderm. And it develops something called Rathke's pouch, which is a little pouch. And inside, the pineal gland and the pituitary gland develop together, okay? And at the 49th day of gestation, it starts to move back from the back of the throat, and it slowly moves as the baby develops into the center of the brain, where the pituitary and the pineal gland split. It's called the epithesis at that time, but it splits into the two. Okay, and it leaves this thing called Rathke's pouch, which actually runs down the back of the throat, back of the brain, into the throat. Now, if I am correct, and that the pineal gland is generating DMT, where will this DMT go? It will drip down from the center of the brain and will grip down Rathke's pouch through the cleft into the back of the throat. So what these people are doing, they are tasting pure DMT. That's fascinating, isn't it? it Now, this again, as far as I know, I am the only writer that's writing about this. And in my book, The, 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 um, The Infinite Minefield, I go into great detail about this. Now, they, they, they know, and for many, many years, there's this, been this thing about the, the, the linking together of the pituitary and the pineal gland. Because many schools of yoga and very other people, they believe that you can, by opening the pineal gland, you can find the God within. Okay? 
But if this is the case, what is this really telling us? They, they, they know, for instance, for many, many years, mystics have said that the pineal and the pituitary together are known as the sacred royal marriage. And they're the sacred royal marriage because of the way they work together to, to generate the way we, we perceive reality. Wow. Okay. Now, here we have something very, very powerful that is now proven by neuro, neurology, proven within neurochemistry, but people aren't joining the dots. You know, people for years have, have had mystical experiences, but we never actually realized that these mystic experiences are actually generated by, well, we know they're generated by our own brain, mm -hmm. but the question is, what do we mean when we say that I have had an hallucination? It's the labeling theory. Mm -hmm. It's something I use an awful lot in my writing. Science is very good at pretending to explain things. And they pretend to explain things by giving things very, very cool names, preferably in Latin or Greek, to, to, um, to disguise the fact that they really don't know what they're talking about. Now, one of the things, for instance, is hallucinations. Hallucinations, if you look up the references to hallucinations, what calls them hallucinations, they don't actually know at all. They know that certain substances in the brain, you can take hallucinogenic substances and you will have hallucinations. But why does a chemical create visions? Mm -hmm. Why and how can a chemical, which when it comes down to it is just a collection of, of atoms and molecules and electrons, how can it create anything in the human brain? Particularly if the human brain is, as modern science believes it to be, simply an evolved organ that somehow has magically created consciousness. Well, by the way, Anthony, what an answer, by the way. And um, yeah. you said so much stuff there. I really want to try and dissect as much as that as I can. I think, I, I think cool. we wrote like two hours of yeah, yeah. stuff there. But I, wanted, I definitely want to go, I, I will jump back. I want to, I've want wrote a point there because I want to touch on the point there when you're talking about um, the pineal gland DMT actually being a model, uh, modulator of this reality because I definitely want to touch on that. But before I forget as well, I want to jump back because you, um, when you were talking about the, um, this was a while ago, but you were talking about the light machine, um, how you were talking about when um, you experienced it, it st stimulated your pineal gland. Yeah. And um, you said about how when you went to, when you went to bed at night, which was obviously a bit longer than when you had the experience with the light machine, you had a, a vivid dream. But I was actually wondering, I mean, I want to ask you this question. Could it be possible that sort of um, once the pineal gland is open, that it actually, um, it has like a window of time where it stays open for? Yeah, I think there is an argument to say once the pineal gland has been opened, it remains open. Mm -hmm. um, my latest book is called Opening the Doors of Perception. Mm -hmm. And in this, I review individuals uh, and people throughout history whose doors of perception have been opened. And I believe for certain people, they're permanently open. I think people who um, experience schizophrenia, the pineal gland is permanently open. Right. And in fact, they are... They are hallucinating in raised commas all the time wow. but what in fact they are doing is they're seeing the reality behind reality yes. they're seeing the greater reality the reality that is hidden from us because the brain is an attenuator 
The brain is something that takes information out. It's not something that puts information in. And again, I'm not alone in this. You know, many, many years ago, uh, Henri Bergson wrote about this. Aldous Huxley wrote about this. C.D. Uh, Broad, the philosopher, wrote about this. The idea that the brain is there in order for us to function within this reality. Mm-hmm. And, this brain, and our brains are coordinated to do that. But under certain circumstances, certain individuals can break open and see through the doors of perception. And they can see the reality behind the reality. Wow, wow. that's fascinating. Eh? Because when you were talking about people with, um, did you say that you said dementia? Didn't you? you said dementia. I do talk about dementia. I do yes. great, great, great detail. schizophrenia. Yeah, yeah. Seen like being open. Yeah, to what... I argue that the the I call it the the Huxleyan spectrum. And on the Huxleyan spectrum, from one end where the doors are only slightly ajar to schizophrenia, where they're blasted wide open, you have migraine. You have temporal lobe epilepsy. You have um, uh, probably, although I've yet to fit it in fully, probably bipolar. Mm-hmm. You have, um, as I say, uh, schizophrenia. You have Alzheimer's. You have autism. All these things are people whose doors of perception, mm-hmm. their, perce- their ability to perceive reality, are far greater. For instance, the researchers into uh, autism, they actually call it the intense world syndrome because somebody who has autism hears things, sees things. Some of them suffer from synesthesia where they can actually see um, sounds, you know, and everything else. It's as if their brains are actually just wide open to everything. Yeah. And th- this is the central point. We are restricted within the caves of our, in the cave, the old Plato, the Plato myth of the cave, the idea that we are trapped within a cave looking at shadows. We believe that the shadows we see on the back of the cave is what reality is. The people who believe that are known as naive realists Mm -hmm. by perception scientists, because the reality that's out there is most definitely not the reality that we see. Well, it is something completely and utterly different. That, that's so fascinating when you said there about that because um, I was reading somewhere actually and it was talking about um, it was like a it was like a re- religious text and it was talking about how um, like whether people believe it or not or whatever, but it's just it's just good to dig into anyway. But they were talking about how um, where, how when, like when God was on the planet, he was vibrating at like a, um, a higher frequency. And um, that, that's what sort of maybe ties in what you were saying about the pineal gland always being open. He was actually uh, maybe some sort of being that came down the planet or whether or, or some being that was born on the planet was actually high, uh, vibrating at a higher frequency and was actually switching between the different dimensions. And also a tie in with that as well as um, I read somewhere where they're talking about um, when children are first born, um, when, you know, when children say that they have uh, mystical experiences and they see ghosts and things like that. Yeah. That I've heard someone talking as well about. I mean, it might have been you. I'm not too sure, but I heard someone talking once about how that could be the uh, the correlation between the child actually just entering this physical reality and the switching between the different dimensions. It's like sort of the pineal gland isn't in tune with this like reality yet, probably. Yeah, there's there's more to that. It probably could have been me. It may have been other people, mm-hmm. but it's interesting with children under the age of I think it's six or seven, mm-hmm. in that they do have mythical friends, they, they they perceive the world in a very magical, different way. And this yeah. is because the doors of perception have not fully closed for them. Also, it may be something to do with the fact that the neurons of the brain of children are not myelinated. 
Myelination is something whereby it, they act as insulation with the electrical, the electrical signals going through the brain. Um, with adults, they're myelinated, which means that the, 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 the electricity doesn't leak out. Whereas with younger children, um, they're not myelinated. And particularly one part of the brain is not myelinated at all. And that is the corpus callosum. And the corpus callosum is the body that holds the right and left hemispheres together. Now, this effectively means that children are, are effectively bicameral in the sense that they, they, they have both a right and left brain that are functioning separately. There's no areas of communication between the two of them. And if they are living within the, the right brain, which is the non-dominant hemisphere, which I, again is one of the areas I believe that is open up to these perceptions, this is why they see what they see. Yeah. They are they are glancing through the doors of perception, as are people at the end of their life when they have Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same thing. In fact, both groups suffer from something called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And Charles Bonnet syndrome is something that elderly people have, particularly partially sighted elderly people, where they see things. My aunt phoned me up only a couple of days ago. My aunt phoned me up. And she turned around to me and she said, oh, I was watching television and there was a child jumping up. I saw the image of a child jumping up and down on, the, on my chair next to me. Well, she said, I know it wasn't real. And then she said she could see trees outside the window and she has no trees, even though she knows they were an hallucination. Now, my own mother, we can touch on this later because there's a wonderful link with my mother between UFOs and well, do you want to talk about it now, or shall we just want to come in with something else? Yeah, just before you just before you do go there as well, because I want to, before I forget, I want to jump back as well because um, this honestly, <laughs> yeah, this is this is a brilliant podcast. I'm so excited, by the way, and um, you, um, I just want to jump back because you, you, when you were talking before about um, uh, DMT and the pineal gland actually being a, a modulator of this reality. Um, I, I was actually thinking there as well if it, if that is the case and it very much could be because I've heard a lot of people talk about that as well. I think uh, Rick Strassman also talks about that as he well. Does. But that makes me also think as well. What does that, that what does that actually mean for humanity? Because it makes me actually question what is reality. Because we've always been told that um, sort of reality is outside of us. Yeah, no, it's not. Reality. Naive realists believe that there is an external world, and they believe there's an external world because their senses tell them. There was one famous statement um, made by uh, it was it was recorded by Boswell made by the guy that did the, the dictionary. I can't remember his name now. Samuel Johnson. Mm -hmm. And they were discussing about the, the ideas of uh, Bishop Berkeley. Um, and Berkeley argued that the only thing you can ever know with absolute certainty is you're, you're a perceiver. That's it. Everything else is could be nothing at all. You've got no proof of it. And therefore, everything could be an illusion. And um, to prove that Berkeley was an idiot as far as Johnson was concerned. He kicked a stone and he said, I refute it thus. And he refuted nothing because all he did was he kicked a stone. And of course, we now know scientifically that we never are in contact with anything out there because, of course, everything has electromagnetic fields around it. So we never touch anything. We never are in contact with anything. And then we start to look at when he kicked the stone. What is the stone made of? The stone is made up of um, molecules. And what are molecules made up of? Atoms. And what are atoms made up of? They're made up of the nucleus and electrons. What are electrons made of? Well, we don't really know. They're point particles. 
They're so tiny as to be untrue. What are they? What is the, the nucleus made of? Well, there's the the, 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 the proton and there's the, the neutron and everything else. But effectively, they, when you break them down, are actually 99.9999% empty space. The atom itself is ridiculously mostly empty space. And the things that are inside it are kind of squiggles in 11 dimensions of space-time. So there's nothing physically out there. What we believe is physical is an illusion or an hallucination in exactly the way as everything else is. Now, for instance... People go on and say about seeing things. Okay, we see by little tiny point particles of light called photons entering our eye and hitting our retina. Photons. A photon can be a wave if it is not looked at or measured, or it's a point particle if it is measured which means that consciousness or the act of observation makes something turn from being a wave, and it's not even a wave that we understand as a normal wave, it's a wave of probabilities. It's not even a real wave. But it's a wave, and then it's measured and looked at and becomes a point particle. But let's look at what a photon is. A photon is the, the carrier of the electromagnetic wave. It's a boson. It carries information. It is a point particle, which means that it has no mass. It has no space. It doesn't exist in space. It's just so tiny a point, it's vanishingly not there. Photons also travel only and ever at the speed of light, which means from the point of view of a photon, there is no time. So a photon lives exists in a timeless place, which effectively means a photon leaving the leaving a star on the surface of the Andromeda galaxy. When it arrives at your eye, when you look at the Andromeda galaxy in the winter sky, for the, for the viewpoint of that photon, it is instantaneous. It is it is the same moment, billionth of a moment that it left the star to reaching your eye, because when you get to the speed of light, time stops. This, again, is Einstein's physics. This is relativity. Any scientist worth their salt knows this. But this is what makes us see. Then we have to look at electromagnetic energy from gamma rays to radio waves. I did in one of my books, I, I tried to show just how ridiculous this believing that what we see is what is out there. I call it electromagnetic chauvinism. Okay. We believe that there's red out there, there's all the colors of the rainbow, and everything we see is physically as we see it. Light is just one part of the electromagnetic spectrum. As I say, it runs from gamma rays, which are incredibly highly energetic waves, with a wave wave speed of something ridiculous, to, to radio waves and, and x-rays and everything else that are, and, that are very long radio waves. Now... If you made that electromagnetic spectrum the length of the Mississippi River, say you decided that as an analogy that the electromagnetic spectrum is the length of the Mississippi River. The Mississippi River starts in a small lake in Minnesota and makes its way down to the Gulf of Mexico. The whole visual world and the visual universe that we think is everything 
would be an inch about eight miles south of Hannibal, Missouri. That is how little we know of what is out there. We don't understand what dark matter is. We don't understand what dark energy is. We know it's there because of the way in which galaxies revolve. This is a simulation we are living in. The brain itself is what creates the images you are now seeing, the sounds you are hearing, my voice you are hearing, and everything that you are perceiving. The brain generates it inside. You see, because one of these little photons hits your retina. We won't even go into the details, and in fact, it's not the same photon that actually left the object you're looking at, because what happens is photons hit some atomic particles in the air, and the subatomic particles take that photon in and eject another one. So it's not even the same photon. When you look out through a window, the photons that are coming this side of the window are not the same photons that are hitting the window the other side, but you see through the window. So it then gets to your eye, hits your retina. Now your retina is postage stamp size and bent. And it creates an it it takes the signals from the the uh, the photons and converts it to an electrical simulation, which is then sent by the neurons of the brain to the back of the brain to the visual cortex, which is the deepest darkest part of the brain. It's right at the back of the brain, totally dark in there. The brain or something in the brain takes these signals, which are no longer remember an image. The image is gone. It recreates from an image that was initially postage stamp size and inverted and bent and recreates from that information the three-dimensional surrounding visual world that you're looking at now. Impossible. (laughs) Impossible. There is something weird going on when it comes to vision. Don't take my word for it. One of the world's leading experts on vision is a guy called Richard L. Gregory. He is the world's leading expert. A few years ago, he about two or three years ago, he was on um, In Our Time on the radio talking about vision. And he turned around and he said, we, we understand some of the processes of vision, but we don't understand how it works. We have no idea how it works. We have no idea how the brain generates color imagery. You know, for instance, green and red. They don't exist outside, and in the real world, everything is black. There is no red. Red is not there. Red is what is called um, a qualia. In fact, we know red is weird because you can't describe red to somebody else. Yeah, you can't. You can't. You can't describe green or anything else, and you've got no way of knowing whether somebody else, because it's all it is, is a particular part of the electromagnetic spectrum when it stimulates the, 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 the retina of the eye and when it goes into the brain, gives us the impression of that color. Wow. But that's it. It's an impression. It's not really out there. Well, great answer again, by the way. And um, I just want to say something there as well, because when you're touching on there, let's just say, say, like, say this reality uh, that we are sort of perceiving for our vision isn't real. I was wondering, I wasn't asking you there, do you actually think that's the reason why the pineal gland might actually uh, exist? Because it's sort of... It's, it's there to sort of show us what isn't real and it sort of allows us to create this bridge between that next reality or the spiritual realm or whatever you want to call it. Yes, it is. Yeah. As, as, you know, I, I am 
pretty sure that the pineal gland, for instance, is responsible for dreaming in some way or another, because when we dream, it is releasing dimethyltryptamine. Mm -hmm. um, I believe that the pineal gland is, in fact, a portal in its own right, and it can allow us access to alternate realities or the greater realities that surround us and that we are restricted here. Um, I, I regularly, I'm doing a, um, an online course at the moment on quantum mechanics. And one of the, the, the statements that's being made on quantum mechanics by the, the, the really top researchers in quantum mechanics is why we can't even begin to understand the things that quantum mechanics tell us about the nature of reality, how it is that particles can be in two places at the same time, mm -hmm. how particles can communicate instantaneously. Uh, the EPR paradox, things like this. And they argue that it's because our brains are literally hardwired, again, to exist in this reality. And there are things that are outside the, this reality that we cannot even begin to understand because our brains just aren't programmed to understand it. You know, I was talking about a wave and a particle. Mm -hmm. Nobody can understand how can it be a wave and a particle uh, Niels Bohr, the, the guy that first came up with these ideas, the Copenhagen interpretation in the 1920s, he very much argued that it just that's the way it is. You can't start to think about it because you'll end up going down a path and getting lost altogether. Mm -hmm. Richard Feynman, one of the greatest scientists of the late, late 20th century, used to turn around to his students and say, you can't, don't even try to understand what quantum, quantum physics is about. You can't... It, whether you cannot believe it or not, it's the way it is. And it is the most scientifically tested uh, theory ever. You know, the, the, the quantum model works to a ridiculous level. Without the quantum physics, we wouldn't have computers, we wouldn't have cell phones, we wouldn't, the sun wouldn't even shine without quantum physics. The sun wouldn't even shine except for something called quantum, quantum leaping. Well. I was just, tunneling, I should say. Just to just jump back as well before as well. Um, I read some research as well. It was talking about how actually um, their DNA gives off some sort of light now. But um, I can't remember if you said this, Anthony, but or someone else. But I think it was talking about light symbolism. Is it actually um true that also at the pineal gland sort of like creating some sort of inner light, inner light to create that reality? Something yeah, like that. yeah, that's, yeah. It's in. I, I discussed this in the book, The Infinite Mind Field. Yeah. The it is to do, I think, with the the, the pineal the pineal salt, the the crystals inside the pine the pineal gland. Now there is something known as um, biophotism, and it is light given off by organisms, and it is known that organisms can give off light internally. We know that there are, there are animals that can actually generate light, mm -hmm. but there seems to be an inner light. It's the light, I argue, that we see when we dream. If yet, people never think deeply enough about this. When you dream, you see things, but your eye, you're not seeing things with your eyes because your eyes are closed, mm -hmm. but you are seeing something. I mean, sometimes people even see shadows when they go lucid dreaming or when they have out-of-the-body experiences or whatever, they, they actually see things. So what is this light that people can see? Now, again, there is a researcher in, um, in Hungary by the name of Istvan Bokken, B-O-K-K-E-N, I think it is. Istvan is a friend of mine on Facebook, and he sent me quite a few of his papers over the years. This guy is really doing the work of how we have inner light and how light is given off by DNA. 
and the DNA itself is driving a lot of this. The DNA is the, we effectively are embodied in this simulation as receptacles and carriers of DNA. Oh. And it's DNA itself that could be the driving force here. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely, definitely want to dig into that in a, in a later on. But I just want to touch on something before I do go there because um, I want to touch on something with you there and say your thoughts on this because um, I know a lot of um, Tibetan Buddhists that, talk, that make statements along the line that's saying that um, the pineal gland plays a role in sort of like the soul reincarnating sort of the next physical uh, next next physical body. Sorry, but I was wondering, like uh, Anthony, in your, any of your research have you made the correlation between sort of um, or found any research in regards to the pineal gland and the soul and sort of the afterlife? It depends on how we define afterlife. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I argue that the afterlife, the, the concept of the afterlife that we generally believe to be the afterlife is is incorrect um, in the sense that wherever we go when we die, it is again into this world or into a reality that is so totally different from this reality Mm -hmm. that even its existence cannot even be described. It's the idea like the the, the Tao, you -hmm. know, the uh, Taoism. And when they try to explain, they say the Tao cannot be explained because we don't have words to explain the Tao. It's because we can't. One of the best, I think, what tends to happen is when we die, and in my first book I discuss this in detail, is we don't die. We die in other people's worlds. Wow. We don't die because we continue in our own time. What happens is when you die, you run out of time in this time, this time frame. So dying is literally you are lost to this world because your time has changed. Wow. You are existing in a different form of time, what Philip K. Dick called orthogonal time. The idea that there is a time that runs at right angles from the time flow that we exist within. Now, again, if you're outside of the time, that kind of time, if you're viewing the world from the fifth dimension, have you seen the movie um, uh, Interstellar? Yeah, have you. Okay. Do you remember the Tesseract sequence in Interstellar where he sees his daughter? I can't remember that. Oh, do you not, not remember it? Look so, it up. Is that where he sees her at different times of the um, of her life? Correct. Yeah. He sees her in all of the times of her life. Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is effectively what Christopher Nolan is trying to do there, the director, is to get over how you could see time from outside of our time, where you would see time as a singularity. You would see all our time as being just one viewpoint in a permanent now. Mm. And he tried to do it as best he could, and he ended up sort of doing something like an Escher painting. But it, it, were, it tried to convey the idea. Now, my next book, which is out in January, is, is called um, The Time and the Rose Garden. And it's a review of the life and works of the British writer J.B. Priestley. And J.B. Priestley did a series of plays, time plays, where he tried to explain how time is circular and can be circular and the way in which the flow of time is a mystery. And the reason the flow of time is mystery is is something that, again, people never think about too deeply. People say time flows. 
Either it flows past you or you flow through it and it flows by you. But what do we mean when we say time flows? When we say a river flows, we see a river flowing against the riverbanks and we get the idea of relative motion of the water in the river because we can see the riverbank and we can gauge the flow and the speed of the river, of the flow of the river by looking at the riverbank. But we say time flows. But what does time flow against, yeah. if that makes sense? In other words, if a time to move, it has to move in something else. Wow. And the only thing it can move within is another form of time. And this, again, is not – I've adapted this, wow. but this is very much the theories of a guy called J.W. Dunn, who in 1927 or 28 wrote a book called An Experiment with Time. And I wrote a book called The Labyrinth of Time, trying to explain the philosophy of time and why time is so mysterious. So and a long story short, when you die, you fall out of time. The question is, can you then communicate back from the location you are in when you're already passed over? And that is a billion dollar question because there yeah. is evidence people can. Yeah. I was going to say as well, as well, I want to say something there as well before I forget. Do you actually think that as well that the pineal gland, the pineal gland could actually sort of um, be the bridge that connects the soul of them different, them, them different times, sort of say? Uh, it, it could. It should. It should. It could do. The question is how I do the science of that. Yeah, you know, to me, it is not a. It's not a question of making a statement and saying this. Yeah, yeah. I want to know. Is it scientifically possible? Yeah, yeah. Is it possible within the general scientific theories we have now? Or is it possible within a, a, an extrapolation from the things we already know about the nature of reality? Mm -hmm. And I think it probably is. Because let's face it, life just seems to, and consciousness seems to just spontaneously appear inside a brain. Mm -hmm. Now, let's think about this for a second. A brain in, in its final form is made of matter. It is made of molecules, it is made of electrons, and it's made of atoms. It comes together collectively to create neurons and everything else. And the neurons then react with electricity, which is a field. And somehow, at some point, maybe it's the addition of one electron or one atom, we suddenly become conscious. But where does consciousness come from? Consciousness has no extension in space. It is non-physical, yet it is the most immediate thing that every single living sentient entity knows. They know they are something perceiving something. Mm -hmm. Now, people will argue, and neurologists and materialist reductionists will argue, that consciousness is just an epiphenomena of brain processes. But how do they explain how brain processes can happen? How is it that a group of atoms can come together in a particular configuration to create a consciousness that wonders what atoms are? Well, <laughs> this read beyond words. In 19, 1999, I think it was, it might have been slightly earlier, a guy called David Chalmers, an Australian philosopher, stood up at a, an event at the University of Arizona and he said, there are two problems with consciousness. The soft problem of consciousness, which is how the brain works, which we are on our way to understanding. But the hard problem of consciousness is how consciousness is created by the brain. Wow. If consciousness comes from somewhere else, if the brain is a receiver, 
like a TV set is a receiver of, 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 of signals and radio signals or radio waves or television signals, why can the brain not be the same way? If the brain is the receiver of consciousness, it means that consciousness exists in a field around us. It is everywhere. And we are just attuned to that particular part of the, the field. And consciousness is our attuning to that field. And if that is the case, consciousness does not need a brain. Therefore, consciousness existed before you were born and will, con will continue after you die in this time scale. Because it is the universal. Consciousness is what creates reality, not the other way around. It's not matter creates mind, it is mind creates matter. So, so basically, like our consciousness has evolved into a huma human state. Yes, it's almost as if we have um, attuned downwards, as if you know we we are like a, a wave that can somehow some, some come together and become a, a particle of matter. Because, of course, effectively, matter and energy are the same thing. This is what Einstein proved with Z equals mc squared. Mm -hmm. The idea that matter and energy are just the same things. Now. If that is the case, if matter is made of energy, why can't consciousness similarly be made of some form of energy? Wilhelm Reich came up with the idea of something called organ energy, an energy given off by living beings. Is this what we are talking about when we talk about biophotons mm -hmm. and bioluminescence? Is this the form of energy? And of course, this energy comes right back to the latest research being done by a guy called uh, um, uh, oh, um, it's called the OR hypothesis, orchestrated objective reduction, um, by Stuart Hammerhoff, who's an anesthesiologist at the University of uh, Arizona, and Sir Roger Penrose, who was and probably still is the Rouseball Professor of Mathematics at Cambridge. Penrose is one of the most famous math theoretical mathematicians in the world. Everybody bows to him, quantum physicists bow to him. And he argues that consciousness is brought about by quantum effects in the brain. And that consciousness is related to quantum events. And consciousness is part of the quantum world. We are from, we are coming in from the quantum world into this world. And I think the pineal gland is probably the conduit for that via structures in the brain called microtubules. Well, well, there's absolutely so much there, by the way. And I was just, just before you said that, there's what I was going to ask you the question there. How does the pineal, um, pineal gland and consciousness actually play into that? But you answered that there at the end there. And honestly, that was what a brilliant answer that was again there. Um, but what I was going to say there, I can't remember what I was going to say now. Um, yeah, but yeah, but when you were talking before about um, Wilhelm Reich, that's what you were saying about the that tapping into the energy field and things like that. Um, I read somewhere as well, and I wanted to see your thoughts on this. Is it actually true that, because um, I heard as well, I wasn't sure it was you who said this, Anthony, or someone else, but you were talking about how um, there actually could be records like sort of in that energy field that's sort of accessible via the pineal gland. Yes. Yeah, it's the, the idea that there is uh, what my associates, I wrote a book, three or four years ago with Irvin, Professor Irvin Laszlo mm -hmm. uh, called The Immortal Mind. Yeah, I've ordered his book as well. Fantastic. Oh, Laszlo, uh, Laszlo's incredible. 
Yeah. Laszlo is incredible. Laszlo and I do very we're, we're on a similar path. That's the thing. That's the main danger with the world we're in at the moment. Mm-hmm. There is the kind of the loony loony tunes people, the sky pilots who are involved in the world of mysticism, mm-hmm. who do so much damage by the nonsense and the rubbish they talk. Yeah. And there are the serious people, the serious researchers, the names I've mentioned here, who are either fully qualified scientists who or who are people that do the science and do it correctly. And Irvin Laszlo is one of those. Now, Laszlo has something he calls the Akashic Field or the Akashic Record. Yeah, fascinating as well. And again, I take that one step further uh, because I then incorporate into that the simulation argument and the idea that this reality is a simulation. And again, I do the proper science of this. I don't just turn around and say, oh, we're living in a computer simulation. Gee whiz, isn't it amazing? Yeah. What I do is I turn around and say, why do we believe we believe we exist in a computer simulation? And it's because of the second law of thermodynamics. And it is to do with black holes. And it's to do with the surface of black holes. And it's to do with the fact that black holes, if you drop something into a black hole, the information contained in whatever you drop in is lost forever. And information and energy cannot be lost. It can only be changed into something else. So the question is, what happens to information and energy when it's sucked into a black hole? Yeah, fascinating. The, the argument is that the edge, the surface of the black hole, has actually got tiny little plank length points. And these points hold, each one of them holds one bit of information. And that the whole edge of the universe, the whole edge of the expanded universe, imagine what from the Big Bang, the universe has been expanding outwards, so it's like a huge um, sphere that we live on the inside of. All along the edge of the sphere are Planck length. Now, the Planck length is ridiculously small. It's, it's 1.16 times uh, uh, 10 to the minus 35. It is so small. This is unbelievable. It's so small that this is when time and everything just stops. But these tiny little things are all dotted around the edge of the surface of the disk of the universe. And they're firing in information. And it creates a huge hologram. And that's what we are. And again, if people think this is nonsense, I suggest they better wake up and smell the coffee because mm-hmm. the Scientific American have been having articles about this for ages. Uh, Egon Musk, the, um, the guy behind Tesla cars and uh, the, the, the guy that's, that's privately sending rockets up, he made a statement a few months ago, turning around saying this is the strong evidence, this is a simulation. So there are wheels within wheels here. And I believe that the informational field, the information that this runs on, mm-hmm. is the Akashic field, the Akashic record. Yeah, and we have to tune into this under certain circumstances. This is why people have past life memories. Mm-hmm. They're it's- tuning into the collective unconscious, which is encoded within the Akashic field. It, that's really fascinating because it, I was really th- I made that assumption in my mind as well, and I was maybe thinking that as well. That's why sort of the pine the pineal gland is sort of allowing us to access that information field that's sort of beyond our known understanding. And um, it's very interesting because Wilhelm Reich he was sort of tap, tapping into that energy system, and tes- I think Tesla was as well. But um, it, when I first started my sort of like journey of like researching information and things like that, um, I was studying the um, Australian Aborigines, and they were talking about how um. 
they were putting themselves in like a state of trance or, or a state of consciousness, whatever you want to call it. But they were talking about how they could they could also access this sort of field of information, and that sort of could be linked to the Akashic records and sort of the simulation, like the holographic universe as well. And um, but it's just fascinating to even think about it though, like like tying all that into the pineal gland of how we can actually sort of it right in right in our right in our sort of in our bodies now we can sort of if we know how to do it, we can sort of access that information it's fascinating well it's it's it, it's it's intriguing because it, it can answer so many questions mm-hmm. about the nature of reality the nature of deja vu for instance you know deja vu if if in effect outside of time there is another time where everything is is in the present moment. Mm-hmm. Precognition is not so strange. Yeah, the idea that you could have lived your life this time and many many times in a version of your own life as a computer game, as a first person computer game, is perfectly reasonable. In the final mm-hmm. chapter, the book I'm, I'm I'm doing a talk in London tomorrow night um, at Watkins Books, and I contributed a chapter to a book on on pandeism, which is the idea that God is the universe. And everything is affected, for want of a better term, God. We are just manifestations of this greater consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, that the simulation itself um, and the information within it means that we could probably live our lives many, many times in our own version of Groundhog Day. So therefore, within the macroverse, within the encoding of the universe, every outcome of every decision made is already encoded in the simulation. Wow. So therefore, when you live your life this time, you follow one path. You come back again, as as a sim does on a computer game, where you're reborn, you come back and you relive your life again. But this time round... There's something different if you've lived your first time because part of you remembers elements of your past life and the past life living as you, which means that becomes your game player. I call that concept the daemon. I call the in-game person the Eidolon. We are all Eidolons living within the simulation, but there is a greater part of us, our higher self, whatever we want to call it, who is our game player. And every time you live your life, and you do different things, the game player amasses more information about the environment of your life. Mm -hmm. Until eventually, after tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of times running through your life, following every single path you could probably follow, as people do in computer games, you know, this is what you do in a virtual reality computer game, you go exploring. You have your on-screen avatar go exploring, and then she gets killed. And you then remember the incident where she was killed last time and you avoid that place with the monster. So you've learned you're a daemon playing an on-screen Eidolon game. I think life is like that. Yeah. It makes it makes me also ask the question as well. Is it like if like we are then video characters sort of say, could we actually, like if that field of information where we've sort of relived all these different computer characters, like is that, is it Akashic Records or is that field of energy that sort of, is that remembrance of what we've done in the past lives to sort of connect back to that? Is it like a natural sort of internet? Because it seems yeah. to me that if we look at, um, like if you look at now with technology, technology seems to sort of like mimic nature in a sense, sort of say. And um, we know that now with sort of, um, sorry, uh, the nature operates like on a, st- like a, pro- a, re- a really far intelligent level than we first thought. And um, it's very interesting because if we can sort of, 
if that if we are a com- computer character, we can sort of maybe connect back into them into them different past like live lives in levels in the computer game. Yeah. Oh, totally. Uh-huh. And of course, there is a central argument, um, and there's more and more scientists that are taking this path now. Uh, I'm I'm reminded of somebody called Vlatko Vadrell, who um, is argues that everything is information. Mm-hmm. Everything is just information. The physical world around us is made of bits of information and we are made of bits of information we are part of an information field and everything is contained within this i mean that this again is what they're discovering in 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 quantum physics some of the things that they're finding in quantum physics they can't understand for instance they can't understand non-locality they can't understand how it is that if you can take two subatomic particles and what's called entangle them what you then do is you can send one subatomic particle off miles away technically billions of miles away and you do something to the other particle that you've got left here and the other one instantaneously reacts now um jeff forshaw the the, uh, quantum physicist once told me over coffee and he turned around to me this was the university of manchester and he's he's brian he was brian cox's phd tutor and has written books with brian cox so coxie knows this as well as i do Uh, He turned around and he said, we know that every electron in the universe knows the location of every other electron. Wow. (laughs) This means that everything is enfolded in itself. Everything, there is no space. Space is not what we think it is. There is no external space in the way we understand it to be. As Ernest Mack said, the philosopher scientist, if there were only two objects in the universe hanging in space, and then one of them disappeared, would space disappear? Because is space actually something, or is it just the distance between things? And if there were no things, there would be no space. Not as crazy as it seems. It's a deeply philosophical question, and also a deeply scientific question as well. You know, exactly what is space itself? But we now know that space is full of zero-point energy. We know that space is full of virtual particles that appear from nowhere and go back into nowhere and exist for a billionth of a second. This is science, but it sounds like crazed mysticism. Mm -hmm. But it's nevertheless the scientists that are doing the business of science, which is actually just going, as we said earlier, where the science points. You know, it's the goal statement. Don't look at my finger. Look at where I'm pointing. Yeah, yeah. And this is what many scientists, particularly certain sciences, the neurologists, the the, the biologists, these are the guys that are trapped in the science of 116 years ago. They're they're in pre-Max Planck science world. They are trapped in a worldview that is materialistic. The scientists that are at the real leading edge from all the years back, the uh, Erwin Schrodinger's, the, the, the Max Born's, um, the Niels Bohr's, a lot of these guys towards the end of their life became very, very philosophical because they could, the, the things that the science was telling them was making them realize that reality is far more complex and far more interesting. But by the same token, and I always say this to people, be open-minded, but don't let your brain fall out yeah. because yeah. there's an awful lot of shysters out there who peddle rubbish and they are making a very good living because they peddle nonsense to the masses and the masses eat it up. Mm. Yeah. I'm not one of them, I'd like to believe. You oh, come to my not. work, 
because you're interested in what I'm interested in. And all I do in my books is I say, look, this is the information. Make up your own mind. I'm not a guru. I don't want to take your money. I'm not going to charge you to go on um, for me to teach you things because there's nothing I can teach. It's all out there in books. Yeah. You know? No, I like that. I, I really do like that. And we, we definitely, I think our audience will definitely see that. Um, but as well, I just wanted to jump back as well because, by the way, that was another amazing point. And there was so much to jump back from it again. But I wanted to, um, I've got a note written down because I want to jump back because then um, you were talking about before about um, the link between uh, the pineal gland and DNA. I wanted to go touch on that because I think that that would be really good to talk about that because um, I've done a lot of like uh, thinking about that. And obviously, I know that there's lots of sort of like historical uh, belief around that, how the third eye is linked with DNA. And I know, obviously, um, I know that you talk about it a lot and also the. Uh, Jeremiah Narby talks about in the Cosmic Serpent, which is an amazing book as well. And I know as well that sort of um, Egyptian cultures have all talked about sort of the symbolism of the. Um, I think they talked about the two intertwining like serpents sort of rising up with the pine cone and those. I think that's what I talked about. But um, yeah, but it, but obviously um, it's very interesting because um, I was wondering how like how, have you sort of what correl- have you made any correlations or links or have you found any like interesting information in regards to sort of the pineal gland and DNA. Yeah, funnily enough, um, mm-hmm. one of my publishers, Watkins, are very, very keen for me to write a book on DNA, um, to, to, to look into DNA in greater detail, um, because there does seem to be something going on here with regards to DNA. Uh, Narby touches upon it really incredibly, mm-hmm. but, but, but other writers, if you go back through mysticism and you go through the mystical schools, you will find... The symbolism in plain sight, the masons, masonic buildings nearly always will have the caduceus, which will be the twin snakes going round each other. Yeah. And if you look at that symbol, it's so obvious what it means. You've got the two snakes coming up like the, 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 the spiral, the helix of DNA, and they come up to the top. And if you look at the pictures of what you'll see is two wings and either in the middle of the two wings is a little circle. That's the pineal gland, and the wings are the, 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 the hemispheres of the brain. Now, there is something called the Kundalini experience, and the Kundalini experience is an intense sensation that people have, and I think it's a huge release of DMT, probably in the, the spinal fluid. And what happens is people, they, they state that what is happening is there are two channels running up the spine. They're called the Ida and the Pingala, and they come together at the top of the brain, at the crown, and they explode out. Now, this again, to me, is the link between DNA and the pineal gland. Because why else would we have this symbolism all the time about twin snakes? And it's particularly Mm -hmm. twin snakes. Now, I saw the snakes, Jeremy Narby saw the snakes. People see the snakes all the time. They're one of the standard types that you will see when you, you you take ayahuasca it's as if they are kind of spirit guides of some description now i believe they're more than that i think they are they are our own dna i believe that dna probably is conscious now if dna is conscious in some way and there were we are but receptacles of dna mm-hmm. you know as, as 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 richard dawkins has said you know, we, we literally are just mechanisms in order for DNA to move through time. I don't well, know if he's ever said that, yeah. but that's what I'm saying. But he's just said, you know, that DNA is a selfish gene. 
and that genes are selfish because they will do whatever is effective for the survival of the, of, of genes. Yeah, I was just going to jump in there, Anthony, as well. It makes me actually ask the question, like, is DNA actually using us to sort of evolve as well, like using our yeah. sort of meat bodies to evolve itself? I think so. I think so. I think that this is what is taking place, is that we are being used in some way by our DNA to move DNA forward. Well, You know, um, and that effectively... When DNA chooses to move on, we will have um, post-humanism and we're already moving towards post-humanism, whereby we are designing machines that, that, that are becoming more and more human. Now, there is the argument, for instance, could you not ultimately design a machine and a computer that you could download your consciousness into it? Mm-hmm. And then you wouldn't die because your consciousness would remain. The problem with that, it's something um, that post-modern, uh, post-humanists talk about all the time. It, it's, it's called the Amiga point, and it's um, very much an idea that we will ultimately become one with machines. But the problem with this is something called the substrate problem. Just because I can, say, scan my brain or your brain, and cop and have understand every single relationship between every single molecule and atom within your brain and have that whole model of it and then digitize it and put it inside a computer. Does that mean I've digitized you or just created a copy? And indeed, would that copy be sentient? And even if it was sentient, would it be self-aware? Mm-hmm. Because would it pass the Turing test? Would it, would we know whether it was conscious or not? I am told by people that I must must watch um, Westworld, the new TV series, because oh, apparently yeah, it deals with a lot of those issues. One, mil- one million percent. I'll be right up your street, right up it. That's absolutely fascinating. Um, as well, before as well, I want to jump back, Anthony, because um, you made a very uh, big point there as well. And um, I was actually watching, um, and I know I think you've seen this as well, the DMT, the spirit molecule as well, the documentary. But um, yeah. Dennis McKenna and that, he talks about how um, he's making the connection as well between sort of like um, messages within DNA and things like that, like sort of messages and coding within our DNA. And he was actually, he made a, good, a very interesting statement. I always remember it. He was talking about how if, say, if some intelligence was trying to communicate with us, he was talking about how it wouldn't necessarily be in the form of like a radio. And he talks about how it would actually sort of build a message within DNA. And then obviously as well, when you raised the question there as well, that DNA actually could be conscious as well. And then you also said you were talking about how um, we are getting to a time now where technology is getting more advanced and we're on the cusp of sort of people talking about how we're going to transfer our consciousness to a machine. I was actually thinking, would if that was the case, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it just I wanted to ask it because I would have, I would have regretted if I didn't see it. But would if that was the case, would DNA actually um, like cease to exist if we just transferred our consciousness into the machine? Yeah, because that's an interesting point in itself. Yeah. yeah, but it's whether DNA, the DNA molecule, is the DNA in no. exactly the same way. You know, are we are we confusing the map with the territory here? Yeah, yeah. you know, there's been work done by Fritz Albert Pop. Uh, who is uh, on biophotons. And, and some of his work is quite fascinating because he makes links between, you know, and it's almost coming around in full circle what we're talking about here. Uh-huh. When we were talking about biophotons, there is a direct link between di- biophotons and DNA and the DNA helix. So it looks like DNA could, po- could, could polarize light. Wow. And it, it, it could be something here. And again, there's the link between 
the, the calcite crystals in the, the pineal gland, they're actually technically called pineal, pineal leocytes, I think is the correct pronunciation of them. That there's a link here that they're all doing the same thing. So could it be that the DNA, the pineal gland, mm -hmm. biophotons, that there is something here that we're not quite joining the dots yet? Now, one of the things why I write what I do is very much my books are almost my my biographical search for understanding. And if people want to come along with my search, that's fine, because this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to join dots. I feel that I've got this huge jigsaw puzzle in front of me and I've got all the pieces. And I know that these pieces will fit. But what I'm doing is, and I, I think I'm the only writer that's doing this, is it's vain to call myself a renaissance man because that's, that's a bad term. But what I'm trying to say is I am not restricted by any one area of academia. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not a qualified quantum physicist. I am a qualified sociologist, if anybody cares about that. But because I'm very, very eclectic in where I go for my information, means that I can delve into anywhere from theology to neurology to transpersonal psychology to neurochemistry, and I will go there, and I will look it up. I will talk to people who have out-of-the-body experiences, people who have had near-death experiences, mm -hmm. people who lucid dream. I will el elicit from them the information that I can use to build a bigger picture, and that's what I'm building, this huge picture. But my problem is, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not immortal. I'm not going to live forever. I'm 63 next couple of weeks' time. You know, I don't have that much time left for me. And I just have this feeling that before my brain gives way to Alzheimer's or whatever, or my brain ceases to be able to use information the way it does mm -hmm. and remember information the way it does, I'm aware that I'm not going to have this ability yeah. for much longer. I, th um, I, th I think that now when I'm in my 20s. <laughs> but um, I want to jump back as well because it was so fascinating there when we're talking about um, like sort of DNA store information because obviously you're making the assumption as well. Uh, Jeremiah Narby was, uh, Dennis McKenna as well, and I've heard other people talking about it as well. But it's really interesting because I was reading somewhere as well, I was talking about how like DNA it can actually store data as well. And um, some biologists were talking about how DNA is sort of like one of the most sophisticated um, information storage devices on the planet that we have now as well. And uh, it's it's fascinating because um, I was actually thinking as well. I mean, I mean, this is this is quite crazy throwing this out there, but I know you touched on this a bit before as well. But I was actually thinking maybe maybe DNA like within the message, like the messages of that DNA. If 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 DNA is actually trying to like transcend messages over to us, maybe I was thinking again just to touch on it again. Maybe it is sort of linking that linking back to this, this the point of where it's just trying DNA itself is just trying to like stay alive because it knows that something down the line that we it knows that human beings are becoming something different and it actually wants to try and like send us a message to try and say like to stop us becoming that machine sort of say if that makes well, sense well funnily enough when you're saying this I mean there's, there's things about DNA that are strange mm -hmm. I mean Francis Crick himself argued this that DNA is so sophisticated as a chemical and as a molecule, mm -hmm. that it could not, there hasn't been enough time on planet Earth for DNA to have evolved the way it has. Yeah. So DNA must have come from somewhere else. I was just about to say that, yeah, I was just, I was on the tip of my tongue. 
<laughs> so if so if DNA has come from somewhere else, the question is, where has it come from? Mm-hmm. And could it be that DNA has been around for billions of years mm-hmm. and that we are just part of an, over, an overall DNA trying to discover itself within this reality? Now, one of the most fascinating stories that I came across, which I discuss in my book, um, uh, The Infinite Minefield, is the story of how ayahuasca was discovered. I don't know if you've heard this before. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'll, 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 I'll let you go ahead, but I, I think I might have a certain idea what you're going to say. Okay. Ayahuasca is, um, as I say, one of the most powerful drinks known. It's a, it's a brew that is made from two, a leaf uh, uh, called uh, Psychiatra viridas and um, uh, a vine mm-hmm. called Banisteri- Banisteriopsis capi. Yeah. And these two are brought together and they are brewed into this kind of foul-tasting tea that people drink. Now, what is strange about this is the way in which and why it is important that those two plants are used. Remember, this was invented by supposedly primitive in raised commerce people. Yeah, it makes. I was going to say, it makes me beg the question as well, like, I think this this might what you might be touching on here. Sorry to jump in, but it makes me beg the question: How do they gain that knowledge to understand and mix them two chemical compounds together? Well, particularly because the chemical compounds do something very interesting. Banisterius uh, psychiatra viridas contains the DMT, mm-hmm. dimethyltryptamine, yeah. the hallucinogenic substance, and if you just took the leaves and ate them and chewed them. However many you ate, you would never, ever, ever have any kind of experience. The reason being, when they get into your stomach, there's something called monoamine oxidase, MAO. And what it does is it effectively stops the hallucinogenic substance passing into the bloodstream. It just pulls a barrier around the stomach to stop it happening. Now, Banisteriopsis has inside it substance, I think it's called harmaline. And harmaline, if I've got the correct substance, so forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but it is an inhibitor. It's an MAO inhibitor. So effectively, when you drink the two things together, the MAO inhibitor stops the MAO being effective, which allows the hallucinogenic substance to pass into the bloodstream and ultimately into the brain. Now, that is intriguing because there are around about 60 to 80,000 different species of plants in the Amazon basin. So when the anthropologists came across this intriguing thing, they asked the shamans how they'd picked of all the plants they pick those two plants. The shaman said, we don't need DMT to go shamanic traveling. We can do it automatically mm-hmm. because they are, their doors of perception are already open. They are well along the route along my Huxleyan spectrum in terms of being able to open the doors of perception. So they can do it at will almost. But when they were traveling, they used to encounter snakes and plants. And one day, the plants apparently 
turned round to them and said, go into the jungle and pick up this, this leaf and this vine and put them together and you will be able to go allow other people to have your experiences in the other worlds. Wow. Now, what is intriguing about this? Imagine I suggest in the book, imagine that the plants were actually DNA in our own subconscious. Wow. Imagine that the DNA itself is the things that communicate with people in these experiences. And the DNA was wanting more human beings to have their doors of perception open because it needs more people to have their doors of perception open in order for humanity to collectively ascend, uh, evolve, whatever we like to call it, whereby the DNA can fulfill one of its major purposes, whatever that purpose may be. And right. I just wonder whether this is a facilitation. Yeah, that's that's a really fascinating point. I want, I want to add something to that as well because um, we had uh, Dennis McKenna on the podcast and he was talking about which links as well. And I was, I was just trying to wrap my head around there. You might make, be able to make a better correlation, but it, it all links up in my head there. And um, Dennis McKenna was talking about how um, ayahuasca itself it is also like a conscious, like sort of entity itself, which what would we do understand now, knowing like what ayahuasca is and the intelligence and nature and things like that. But Dennis McKenna was talking about how actually ayahuasca is actually sort of has its own, um, has its own evolve, like has its own purpose to evolve itself. So he was mm. talking about how ayahuasca could actually be sort of, um, it knows that in the future that they say the earth is going to um, eventually sort of die, die off. So ayahuasca itself actually needs to evolve itself so that human oh. beings, yeah, so human beings can take, take the plant and the, uh, the, sorry, the seeds to other planets in the universe. Excellent point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Could be exactly because uh -huh. it, at the moment it's trapped here. Uh -huh. Well, it's maybe it's trapped, it's probably in other places, yeah. but this particular form of DNA that we have here has evolved with us because I don't know whether DNA itself evolves. Because, there, you know, there are so many mysteries about DNA as to how it ever came together, mm -hmm. even not even just evolving, how it happened. Uh, I can't remember who it was. Um, it was some scientist. And he said the chances of DNA evolving was the same chance of a whirlwind going through a junkyard and creating a 747. <laughs> it's that ridiculous. Um, I can't, I can't really, I should remember who that was. I know it, it's sometimes quoted as, as, as being Francis Crick, but it wasn't Francis Crick, I don't think. It may have been, but I don't think it was Francis Crick. Mm. But I can stamp, uh, stamp uh, corrected on that. So what does this tell us? I think you're right. I think Dennis is right there. I mean, I'd love to, to have a chat with Dennis McKenna one day because where he's going with his work, and of course, you know, with, his, with the sad loss of his brother as well, you know, yeah. that, that it would be fascinating to... Um, to talk to these guys in greater detail. In fact, I tried to have a conversation with Jeremy Narby, but he, he was um, he was about to present, and he, we didn't get back together again. But we had a very quick conversation in the hallway uh, at uh, Breaking Convention. And if anybody's interested in Breaking Convention, it's on this summer. It's a three-day event at the University of um, Greenwich, yeah. whereby all the great and the good who's interested in exactly the subjects we're talking about today get together. Last year we had over, last two years ago, there was over 800 people went to it. And it is the most amazing three days. 
believe me, if you live in the UK or even if you want to travel, go to it. It's called Breaking Convention. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to go to that now as well yeah, since definitely. you mentioned that. Yeah. Unfortunately, I would have been going this year, but they moved the dates. And I normally go to Greece away, uh, go to Greece on holiday. And I always plan my holiday so I could get to Breaking Convention. Mm-hmm. But they moved the date of Breaking Convention. It's now while I'm away, oh. which is a tragedy. So I won't be there. But there's lots of people I know who will be there. And it is... I think it is the most enjoyable conference you can ever go to. Yeah. Wow. It just just to jump back as well, because I want to jump on this point as well. Um, I know we're coming towards the time now, but just be. Um, I just wanted to jump on this point. Um, before as well, when we're talking about sort of you said about um how um DNA. I hope I get this right, but you said how DNA um it's actually evolved a lot quicker than it should. It really should have on the planet, and um I was actually thinking maybe like a possibility in my mind. There, I was actually thinking maybe um see if an alien race was so much more advanced than us. They, I was thinking in my head that it could be a possibility that they engineered a situation where they sort of had to, um, their race had to live on, sort of say, so they so they sort of did all, all they put their DNA and sort of, uh, they, sorry, they mixed our DNA together in the altered sort of DNA and, and they've actually left a message within our DNA so mm. that we can actually encode it when we're ready. I, I think that's a possibility, and I think that there can be links right, right to the Ananak, Ananakai yeah. as well in ancient Suma. Um, I don't go as extreme as some writers do on this, but there is definitely something intriguing in deep history about this. Now, my next book, which I'm about to start writing um, next week, funnily enough, is going to be called um, either Through the Doors of Perception or The View from Magonia, because my publisher wants me to take a lot of the themes I've discussed in my last book um, to to look at when people have out-of-the-body experiences or lucid dream or, or have alien encounters, what is the nature of the entities that they perceive in these altered states? Are they sentient? Are they really self-aware? Or are they just expressions of our own subconscious? Wow. I believe yeah. they are far more complex than either of those analyses. And my new book will be really going into alien abductions, what we really know, what is happening neurologically here, what is tacit fact and what is legend. But effectively, I think that that the entities can be linked with 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 um, the, the, the the lost civilizations that we talk about, uh, the way we discuss, for instance, the the, 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 the secret kingdom, the fairy folk of the, of the Celtic fringe. I think there are huge links to be made here. And I know I'm not original on this. I know that people like um, Jacques Vallée uh, and people like um, who's the guy that, John Keel, all these guys have written about this in the past, but I don't think anybody's written from the angle I'm going to be coming at it from. And in fact, I'm in discussions two weeks ago that I was involved in an online seminar with a group of high-ranking scientists from across the world. We're talking about cosmologists, um, quantum physicists, neurologists, and these guys are all got doctorates coming out of their, coming out of their ears, you know, yeah. really, really quite famous people. And we're all discussing how we take this forward. So very exciting times at the moment, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think as well, once you do get that book published, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back on the podcast and, and delve into that as well because that sounds like another absolute mind-blowing conversation. Yeah. But um, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and um, thank you so much for bringing all this information forward because it really is a, um, 
a fascinating topic and I'm sure our audience will uh, be grateful and, I'm, and most importantly I'm definitely grateful because I absolutely love geeking, yeah. geeking out on this stuff it's absolutely amazing thank you though so much for your time we really do appreciate it thank you very much and thank you for inviting me onto your show as I was saying I think your website is superb you have had some fascinating guests in the past and I'm sure that you will you will go on I mean the, the, the graphics there are fantastic and uh, just the way you interview is excellent and uh, I, I wish you all the luck in the future with this Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and we'd love to know if you guys think the pineal gland or DNA actually may be a doorway to the secrets of the universe. Reach out to us and let us know. We'd love to know what you think. But anyway, thanks so much for Anthony for coming on the podcast and sharing his knowledge and wisdom. It truly was an epic podcast and we had such a fun time time chatting with him. So please check out all of Anthony's amazing books. And I've actually just ordered myself two of his books now, Opening the Doors of Perception and the Immortal Mind. And I cannot wait to get them and dig in at them. So anyway, all the links to all the books and all the things mentioned are in the show notes at the Ascend Podcast website. And if you guys really do believe in what we're doing on the podcast, please just take a few minutes and support the podcast if you can. You can even pledge $1 and every bit of help we can get will be amazing and really help us take this to the next level. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. We love you all and we'll catch you next week. Keep seeking everyone. Peace.